Blog Talk Radio. I'm 
classical. It's always an honor and a privilege. Speak truth to power and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all the various forms of oppression. We welcome you on the seventh day of March 2021 to another episode of Africa on the Moon. Like always, the order for tonight we entails. What's going on in your world community? We will have a discussion on education and racism, followed up with today's theme, part three, the money game and control. Those are the orders for this particular event. And at this time, like always, the way we get started with our party is to introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first would like to welcome and bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki, coming with African Awareness. And of course, you know my thing, Brother Africa, is all about institution building. But certainly one of the things that uh, makes um, you know, uh, institutional building difficult is that uh, when you talk about politics or you talk about interpersonal relationships, oftentimes these uh, these various systems are complicated, you know, by you know by individuals in terms of their their lack of knowledge, uh, their objectives, or even their class standing. So it's not easy in terms of bringing about the kind of cohesion you need in terms of bringing about a, a unified and formidable uh, movement. So clearly, you know, I got to think about that, and so in terms of these complications, in terms of bringing about. Uh, uh, you know, the kind of uh, organization we need. The whole question around uh, political conditioning became an issue. And I, I wrote something and I think it sort of underscores some of the problems in terms of trying to bring about unity in the, in the community among the oppressed, which is so de- so desperately needed. Now, recently, Dr. John Boyd released a study entitled Principles Society Project. The project seeks to create societies which are transformational, capable of looking at societal breakdown, i.e. global warming, wealth inequality, and biodiversity loss, and coming up with system-wide solutions to combat such problems. The report is premised on the supposition all living things are cognitive, that when presented with a problem, living things, including humans, are capable of using their mind or neural network to innovate effective plans to address problems that threaten their existence. Cognitive capabilities, a rather broad term, can differ among human beings. Perceptions of the perceived threat is complicated by class standing, quality of educational instruction, or even psychological deficits. Perhaps this explains why the, the response to imminent threats facing humans is often confronted with bureaucratic responses that addresses problems from a narrow perspective. For example, the attempt to eradicate poverty in the U.S. historically has utilized transfer payments to provide resources for the most impoverished. President Linda Baines Johnson's Great Society was successful in reducing poverty and has succeeded, has succeeded presidents continue the policy of the Great Society the elimination of poverty could have been achieved. Obviously, many systems, uh, financial, legal, and otherwise, oppose such payments or transfer payments and actively fought against the elimination of poverty. Ironically, the elimination of poverty would have been a huge benefit to society. By eliminating poverty, the velocity of money flowing through the system would have provided the stimulus the economy needs to expand. Elimination of poverty would also lessen social ills, which contribute to crime, drugs, and birth effects. 
both organic and inorganic. Reduction of the statistical categories would have lessened investment in institutions like police, prisons, courts, represents a strain on the economy since they do not contribute economic or otherwise to the growth of the economy. Conservatives would likely argue giving free money to poor people would, uh, would, or to reduce poverty would only make them lazy. The irony of this statement is free money has always been given to the wealthy. Despite wealth having, despite wealth having access to free money, the results have been and continue to be a contraction of the economy. Even when economic statistics point out targeted wealth for the wealthy undermines the economy, the practice persists with regard to monetary policy which specifically makes money available for the wealthy. So why do the competing views over the legitimacy of ending poverty? Clearly there is a class dimension that informs views on ending poverty. In a capitalist society where winner takes all, it's easy to see the inclination to achieve as much for oneself without regards to those crippled by having nothing at all. The bigger picture is, if the winner takes all philosophy persists, the wealthy that is so so valued will be negated by social problems whose costs will increase exponentially. Rising levels of unemployment, homelessness, incarceration rates would only compare governments to increase tax rates of those who have who are able to pay, namely the wealthy. Even now, the thirty six trillion dollar tax haven or tax shelters for the wealthy face intense scrutiny as governments around the world struggle to find revenues for its budgets. When all is said and done, wealth accumulation by the, by the wealthy creates far more problems than it solves. So why persist? Aside from the class issue, scientists have been debating how the brain functions. More specifically, scientists continue to look into the function of the conservative brain versus the liberal brain. In the book, Predisposed, the term political neuroscience was coined to address the question of liberal versus conservative thinking. This theme was reflected in articles published in the journal Experimental Psychology. One article picked up on a term that seems quite relevant in human relationships. The term is motivated thinking. Motivated thinking is a term used by people mentally to justify opinions, even when the evidence conflicts with their opinions. This term is interesting in that numerous studies define the courage, the conservative archetype, as those who value security, predictability, and authority. For example, many as an embodiment of good, despite blatant assassination of African people and the killing of poor white people by law enforcement. Our has become even more glaring with respect to national security. Many conservatives are willing to spend endless sums of money on endless wars while the national infrastructure continues to crumble. Investments in endless wars encourage military programs that not only threaten the planet, but ensure destruction of humanity itself. Recently, the Air Force allocated $100 billion for additional nuclear weapons, in particular nuclear missiles. These missiles will be capable of using 20 times the power of the bombs Gap on Hiroshima, Japan. In addition to awesome killing power, these missiles will generate nuclear waste with shelf life anywhere from 30 to 24,000 years, depending on the enrichment process. Currently in the U.S., facilities deposit nuclear waste lacks federal funding. Much of this nuclear waste is encased in semen underground generating enormous temperatures, which is capable of leak. Exelon Illinois nuclear power plant is a perfect example. By contrast, the liberal archetype consists of those who value nuance, complexity, and originality. Many liberals' typical response to police brutality is to see police as part of a system that exists to protect property and to keep the poor people in line. Same phenomenon, two different, two different perceptions. With respect to the concerns of nuclear waste, most liberals prefer an end to nationalist rivalry justifying such weaponry in the first place. Instead, such a reference could be used for peaceful pursuits, which ensures the longevity of the planet and the proliferation of human beings on this planet. Now, as a side note, one thing is important to point out, 
recently uh, they sent a, a, a rover to Mars to, to, to survey the, 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 planet of Mar- the planet of Mars. Now, what people didn't know was this, this, this particular uh, rover was, was fueled by plutonium. For those who don't realize, plutonium is the most lethal radioactive substances known to human beings. Now, the question becomes, what would happen if the nuclear if this if this rocket, this nuclear power rocket to Mars had exploded on the landing pad? Well the answer is quite obvious, massive contamination. Now given the kind of hubris that we talk about uh when we talk about use use of plutonium, the mere fact that some individual position is that they have the the, uh, the the sole right to determine the fate of human beings by unilaterally making decisions which threaten all of humanity. And they're doing this at a cost of three point seven billion dollars. So this kind of hubris is something that seriously we have to begin to confront at some point. Now, the point is not to imply such studies are conclusive or even scientific or even categorize human behavior based upon skin color. Such studies are only relevant in that they demonstrate pre-existing biases exist and that these biases can be manipulated by propaganda and institutions that seek to preserve the status quo even when the threat is evident. Posing people to the truth in and of itself may not be enough to counter the impact of propaganda. So, Brother Africa, we got our work cut off for us in terms of trying to organize folks around issues that are so pertinent to their lives because it's not as cut and dry as we like to believe. And I'll close with that. Yes, we do, Brother Hakeem. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Uh, revolutionary greetings to you. The fellow panelists and the listening audience, my name is Anthony uh, Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Uh, Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Next, next we have Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show. It's always an honor to have you, Brother Moses. Now, panelists, let's go to our first transition for today's program. It's like always, you can talk about a little bit about what's going on in your world in the community. Start off with you, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world in the community? Well, Brother Africa, I just sort of want to follow up on something I discussed briefly last week, and that was the issue in Portland, Oregon, uh, where they have these snowstorms. And as a result of that, uh, no electrical power, a lot of stores, the Spread Maya store in particular, Throughout, you know, all this perishable foods, and particularly, you know, things like meats, cheeses, dairy products, fruits, vegetables, and those kind of things. And as a result of throwing out those foods out, a lot of people, once they became aware of them, said the food was being thrown out, they circled the, the, uh, they, they circled the place in, in an attempt to you know, gain access to that food that they were throwing out in the dumpsters. 
they managed uh, to great offense at these poor people seeking to gain access to this food, and he in turn called the police. Of course, the police came out initially, you know, attempted to persuade people from 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 you know eating the food, and uh, but ultimately they realized that it was a real threat, and so the police essentially withdrew from that from the scene. But what I find very interesting about this particular situation is that you know, just according to the dervish there, you know, at, on the scene, uh, the shelf life of the food that they threw out had not expired, and so that was very very interesting. I thought if he's concerned about the health of the people. Included the shell lives had not expired, so then it's questionable whether or not he really was concerned about the health of the people who were consuming that food. Also, the fact that the weather was very, very cold, uh, was tend to preserve food, is less likely that that food would actually uh, contribute to poisoning anybody somewhere because it's so cold out there. The second thing, Brother Africa, you know, is that, you know, um, if in fact that this manager was really concerned about the health of the human or, or the legal liabilities in terms of the store, one of the things he could have what it clearly did was to post a sign stating, you know, that, that this food is being thrown out, and, and, and he's suggesting that people not consume it because you never know, given the fact that it's not continuously uh, refrigerated, that it may constitute problems for you. So that would resolve all his legal liabilities in terms of putting that food out there if, in fact, if the motivation was the question of legality. Thirdly, you know, Brother Africa, one of the things that when you talk about, you know, food being questionable in terms of its, its value, it was its content, one of the things uh, the people who consume their food understand that sight and smell is, is a very uh, convenient uh, indicator as to whether or not the food is a quality or not. And so, therefore, people would reasonably make the correct choice if, in fact, if it's threatening their health to reject it. So there's a notion that this, 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 uh, this, this manager was doing this because he was concerned about the well-being of the, of the poor people who were on the access to this food questionable. I, su- I suggest and I surmise I su- I perhaps it had more to do with the fact that this, this manager was, was, was angry because he, cause he, his reception was that these poor people are getting something for nothing. And that's where they're getting this free food without paying for it. So I think in a typical capitalist fashion, I think he was irritated by the notion that if any time you help people, then there has to be a price tag that's affiliated with that, with, that, with that help. And so I think to a large extent his motivation suggests that it had more to do with, in fact, in terms of class values in terms of not wanting to see poor people have to ask for that food, to that food simply because poor people, quote-unquote, couldn't afford it. So it's very interesting, you know, when we talk about this kind of mindset and this, this kind of behavior that we talk about with a, a capitalist society, this kind of mindset is prevalent among people who embrace capitalism, this kind of selfishness, this kind of apathy, this kind of uncaring uh, for the needs of, of humanity is something that's commonplace in capitalist society. So it's one of those things that clearly we got to be able to recognize, and when we see this kind of mindset manifest itself, we're going to say precisely, what does what does uh, mindset manifest itself from? Okay, brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, several things. Uh, one, uh, let's see. Uh, Cuba is in the process of developing its own drug to ha- uh, to handle uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And uh, so, uh, and so, and uh, so it is not, uh, you know, dependent upon the capitalist countries, uh, you know, for their, uh, for their, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, drugs. And also, uh, let's see, uh, I read an article that uh, Nicolas Maduro, 
uh, of uh, president of uh, Venezuela uh, took an injection of uh, Sputnik, uh, which is, I, I think, a Russian, um, uh, you, you know, uh, a vaccine uh for dealing with uh uh you know for prevent uh for uh d- dealing with uh uh covid nineteen and uh let's see uh, uh let's see in 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 in, in uh let's see in the u s uh in the dash uh let's see um uh, let's see. Uh, the NBA All Star activities are being dedicated uh, to funding HBCUs. That's interesting. All right, thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we're going to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. As usual, the big thing in the world is the government. Since government has such an impact on our lives, and uh, and um, you know, this week um, the Congress and the Senate, in particular, managed to pass that 1.9 trillion dollar relief package uh, that will help a, a lot of people. I think um, um, it's not not perfect answer, but it, it's it's a progressive and. Uh, so that was good. Um, it was strictly along party lines, strictly Democrats versus Republicans, and uh, it just shows the contradictions are are, are pretty intense. Uh, uh, and that there is a, a line between the progressives and the non-progressives. And um, anyway, this week has been interesting. Uh, um, they tell me that the weather is going to break and um, it's going to be a, a lot more pleasant coming up this coming week. Uh, anyway, that's about it. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Hey, to Brother Haki and the rest of the panelists, y'all can respond to this um, particular um, scenario. But Brother Haki, I found your your information dealing with the store and how they dealt with uh, throwing away the merchandises from their store as it relates to food in relationship with getting to the people. I find your story interesting because one of the things we know in terms of looking at this uh, economy and this the political um, economic system is that businesses are always giving flexibility rules and laws where they can uh, reap their laws. So in terms of them throwing the food away to store owners, they're not going to lose anything because they write everything off. Most of the time, they write off more than what they really threw away. So I don't understand what is what is, what is really the problem in terms of um, in terms of owners of these food markets having problems with not wanting people to um, have access to what they perceive as maybe. Uh, uh, food that can be thrown away. Why at the same time, you know, many times that food is not in a, like you stated, it's not in a bad enough condition where people can't consume it. So, you know, I still wonder what, what will drive them to that attitude because they don't lose no money. Matter of fact, most of the time, they overestimate what they threw away. 
and really ripping off the government and the people money. You know, response, Brother Aki, and the rest of the panelists? Yeah, well, Brother Africa, I think it has more to do with, um, I think it has more to do with politics uh, or philosophy than anything else. Uh, clearly, the motivation in terms of throwing away the food, uh, you know, um, you know, it could have been better served by simply saying, listen, you know, uh, we, we can get rid of this food as opposed to putting it in the dumpster. We, so what we're going to do, we're going to provide it to the community at large because it's so clear in terms of level of poverty that exists and important. And so, therefore, the humane thing would be to say, listen, we're going to dispose of this food, but, you know, a lot of it is good, and uh, just to protect ourselves, we're going to make sure that that food that, which is questionable, we would dispose, but the food which is still has a shell life, which is still good in terms of visual inspection, we provide to the people. But in order for to do that, then you have to have a different perspective in terms of life. Uh, one of the things in terms of, you know, when you, when you lose the fact that, you know, this, this guy can write it off, uh, the mere fact that he can write it off but still didn't want poor people to have access to food speaks to, speaks to politics. Uh, clearly, it seems to me that uh, his, his real motivation was the fact that he had a, philosophically, in a very difficult time with poor people having access to, to, to free food. I think that was his problem. So that's why in, 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 that's why he called the police. Because he hoped that the police would use the, state, the, the power of the state in terms of preventing those poor people from having access to their food. Where the cops in this particular situation were, were clever enough or intelligent enough to understand that, listen, if people having access to their food is not a crime. And so the police left and they refused to be a part, a part, of, that, uh, a part of that game plan. So in, that, in this context, we got to applaud the police for their, their, their intelligence, their empathy, or their compassion in terms of, you know, have, allowing poor people to have access to their food. And particularly when the poor people were very orderly, they weren't beating each other up or all this for the food. They were getting what they need, and they move, the next person come up, get what they want, they leave, and so forth and so on. And that's how it went. So clearly, you know, uh, you know, that's the question, Brother Africa. It all comes down, it all comes down to, to politics. It comes down to philosophy. And I'm, I'm afraid, you know, one of the things that when we talk about uh, the capitalist mindset in terms of the, its ability, in terms of fomenting the worst in human beings or bringing the worst out of human beings, capitalism is a very good system of bringing the worst out of human beings. And so, therefore, when you see something like that, someone who's who adamantly opposed to poor people having access to some nutrition, it speaks to a kind of philosophy that says that human life is unimportant, that what is tantamount is access to dollars and cents. And so, because the poor don't have access to dollars and cents, their lives are esoteric or superfluous. In other words, poor people should have no right to exist simply because, simply because they have no money for food. And so, the idea in terms of providing food for them at no cost it's simply just too much for this individual to, to deal with. And so it's, it was easy for him to simply call the police in an attempt, you know, to have his will. Uh, um, but anyway, Brother Africa, I think the answer question, you know, it comes down to politics. It comes down to philosophy. And I think this particular guy was pretty much epitomizes what it is to be a capitalist and why capitalism is so destructive and why it not only threatens, you know, the planet, but it threatens human life as well, simply because of this notion that, you know, money is the be-all of everything. Yes, I concur with all the points uh, Brother Hockey made, and I would add uh, the factor of greed, uh, and uh, which under capitalism is not, uh, uh, you know, it's a positive virtue, but it increases, uh, you know, the, uh, the suffering among the people. And it's interesting, uh, uh, the police response to the situation, because the role of the police 
is uh, to uh, is to normally to protect the property of the ruling class. So you know, so in this case, uh, the police, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, you know, did not play their typical role in this situation, which would have, uh, you know, added, uh, you know, to uh, you know, to the suffering of the, uh, 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 you know, of the poor if they if they had. So I thought that was uh, interesting, uh, you know, their response to the situation. But, you know, I wonder in terms of the police response, also maybe it was that response also were related to uh, the nature of the look of the community. I think Brother Hackey said it was somewhere in Portland, the other in Portland, Oregon. Um, I wonder if that same situation happened in the community, uh, in the African community, what would have been the police response as relates to the store owner desire and the people, you know, there taking the food? I just wonder if people had the same response. Well, it's a very, very interesting uh, point that you raised, Brother Africa, because Portland is, by and large, you know, a, you know, a predominantly uh, white, and so therefore one could, one certainly could speculate, you know, that perhaps the police uh, behavior was monitored was. Was 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 sanctioned by the fact that uh, you know that the poor people, in this case, were, were white people, and so therefore they're less likely to use abuse or, or violence in terms of you know uh, running them away. That's that's always a possibility. Certainly, I would like to believe that under circumstances that, irrespective of the color of the of, of the poor people who were clamoring for food, I would like to believe that you have enough law enforcement, enough integrity, enough intelligence to understand that given the doubt situation out here and people's lack of access to food. That any time people have access to gain access to some food, that you'll be uh, humane enough to say, listen, I'm not going to stand in the way because this is the humane thing to do, that people should have access to food. I'm hoping that is the case. But we can't, but you're right, Brother Africa, we cannot discount the possibility that simply because we're talking about a predominantly white crowd, then it's very possible that the police response to it is quite different uh, uh, as opposed to, let's say, the crowd was predominantly people of color. So it's very, it's a very interesting question, Brother Africa. But I like to believe that, uh, irrespective that, uh, because the situation is so grim, particularly in terms of kind of impoverished, impoverishment that exists in American society, that, that there are some cops who have some type of uh, compassion when it comes to you know the needs of poor people, and would, and would they put their job aside uh, for the purpose of ensuring that people get what they need in terms of uh, being part of their human rights. So. Uh, it's a very good question that you raised about the African. Yeah, because I think we did see that similar narrative play out at the Capitol recently. I would have thought if anyone would have told me you get large groups of people who will force themselves on the lawn at the Capitol and come in and beat the police, that the police will respond responding back in a different way. But that was a very peculiar response that took place in the White House. Now, many questions have been posed that if it was African people and people non-European makeup, they think they would got a different response. So, you know, when you were reading the story, you know, they had to, that came to my mind in terms of, again, you know, we also are conditioned in certain ways to respond to certain situations as well. And I definitely assume that this had to be a predominant, basically, um, European community. Because um, I don't think 
or looking at their historical uh, behavior. But you, but you know, Brother Africa, with respect to that that gathering at the at the Capitol, uh, one of the, one of the ironies is that uh, the intelligence community was quite aware that all these people were gathering. In fact, a lot of the, the leading uh, uh, politicians, certainly individuals who are connected to leading politicians, in particular Roger Stone and people like that. Uh, were very much an uh, intimate part in terms of organizing all of these poor white people to come to Washington D.C. for the sole purpose of expressing their indignation in terms of the uh, in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the the presidential race. So clearly, you know, intelligence is well aware that they were coming, and so the mere fact that they chose to do nothing. Uh, I'm talking about the Pentagon. And I'm talking about the the the, 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 the police agencies there, uh, the FBI. The mere fact that all of them. Determined, decided that they're not going to intervene speaks volumes. And I, su- I suspect that a lot of their, their indecision or their unwillingness to convene in terms of preventing that from happening had a lot to do with the fact that, the fact that these were, you're right, these were white people. And so this notion in terms of, you know, we've got to be, be very clear that when we talk about these kind of movements, none of these movements can take hold without the finance and without the visibility uh, provided by very wealthy people. Let's, let's be very clear on that. Let's be very, very clear on this stuff. See, behind the scene, when we talk about these poor people gathering and, and raising hell, but we don't talk about it. What we don't see is the wealthy people behind the scene manipulating the poor people to actually carry out their will. And so in that context, you know, uh, because these, 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 these very uh, connected individuals who have relationship with the intelligence community, they knew precisely, you know, what was going on. So there was no, there was no ambiguity about that. They were very clear that these people were going to converge on the Capitol. So that was, that was no question about that. Now, had there been people of color, uh, in particular African people who had did that, then, of course, there would have been the, the number one, uh, every, police, every police agency in the Northeast would have been, uh, would have been uh, uh, utilized to prevent that from happening in the first place. They wouldn't even have even got on the lawn, let alone get into the White House. That simply wouldn't have happened. So clearly, uh, you know, uh, race, this is America. And uh, you, you would be naive to assume that uh, race doesn't play a part in terms of things that go on. Of course it does. And, and I think that if people were people of color, the response would have been totally different. If they had reached the, uh, the, 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 the White House lawn, uh, I think bullets would have been flying. I think you've been killing some of dead African people, you know, or people of color, you know, laid, sprawled across the, across the lawn. Because they simply want, they simply want to tolerate such a thing. Keep in mind, we have it. See, we, we're, see, African people are, quote, unquote, you know, we are the bad guys. So we take, for, for all the ills of this system, uh, all of those ills are, are fundamentally placed on the shoulders of African people. So African people are depicted as the problem. And so, therefore, it's easy for them to see us as an adversary, as the enemy. And so, therefore, when we come, uh, there, is no, there is no discussion. There is no, there is no attempt to, to, me, to mediate the situation. It's simply violent. Bullets would have been flying. That's no question about that. That's no, that's no, in my mind, there's no question about that. But the mere fact that these, 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 these poor whites with no access to the White House speaks violence in terms of the kind of power that those behind the scenes actually wield in terms of their ability to manipulate movements and, you know, for their benefit. So we should understand that when we talk about fascism in American society, then we've got to understand clearly that when we talk about, you know, the, 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 when we talk about fascism, essentially what we're talking about is the power behind the power. So we see the poor white folks, but what we don't see is the wealthy white folks behind them manipulating them, financing them, making sure they do this kind of thing. And keep in mind, by allowing these, these poor demonstrators to transverse the White House, what they, essentially what they did was they gave 
the, 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 they gave the white, they gave white, white Paul Weiss a victory, which means that this is something that the, 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 the right-wing white, the, the right-wing white uh, uh, racist can sell in terms of organizing principles. They can say, listen, we transversed the White House. We did something nobody has ever done before. We, we went in there, we raised hell, we destroyed things, you know, we took over, blah, 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 blah. It becomes a selling point. And the people in position of power, they know that. They gave them a selling point. One of the first things they do in terms of time of the war, one of the things you never do is allow, is allow, allow your so-called adversary uh, a victory. That's the first thing you don't allow. And so, therefore, one of the things when you talk about African people, African people would have attempted that. That wouldn't have been allowed because they're not going to allow African people to get a, get a win. They fight as a, a, a proof and nail in terms of making sure on whatever level the African people don't achieve a win because psychologically it does, by not allowing us to achieve a win, what it does it makes it less likely, it makes it more difficult for us to organize people because of our fear or out of ignorance and so forth. So clearly by allowing these poor white folks a win, they facilitated the, the, the movement further right in society, which is precisely what they wanted, which is why they allowed them to do what they did. So make no mistake about it. Intelligence communities were aware where they were coming. They knew they were coming. They knew that. They had memos between one another talking about their coming. They knew it. So let's be very clear on that point. So, you know, you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. This is America. And for anyone who thinks race doesn't play a factor, uh, to my socialist brothers and sisters who think race don't play a, play a, quite a, play a factor in terms, of, in terms of how the system is organized, then they better think again. But clearly, race does, does play a big part in terms of what does and what doesn't happen. Brother Anthony, and yeah. man, the rest of the panelists, I'd like for y'all to weigh in. I responded to a statement you said in terms of what's going on in your world community that this all-star game by the National Basketball Association, the NBA, that comes on tonight, um, the uh, proceeds from this money will go will go to historically African universities. Now, later on during this program, we're going to talk about the theme, part three, the money game and control. When I heard you say that, it reminded me of an example, a good example of a theme tonight, the money game and control. For example, they're going to set aside so much money that comes from this NBA um, basketball game tonight, give the historically um, African universities. While mm-hmm. at the same time, while at the same time, they have a league consisted of 80 to 90 percent Africans, but let all, but yet all of the ownership, the management, is basically total control by Europeans. They do not let Africans penetrate those um, avenues. Recently, there was a basketball player, Kevin Garnett, who played with one of the basketball teams, the Minnesota Timberwolves. He put a group together of Africans. They tried to purchase a team, and it made it so difficult for him to get the team. And were only based upon, solely were based upon, they were Africans. Also, the last three to four years, all the basketball players that played the game and played the game, even today, we have no. This league has no more than less than three percent, three to five percent of African coaches. And that's not even talking about the GMs and man, man, um, and managers. So is this whole PR thing about funding money to the African universities is another smokescreen 
or disguising their historical behavior of racism and keeping Africans from having access to real wealth? Yes, I, 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 I would I would definitely concur on that point. And uh, it, it is a smoke screen, and it's actually um, it, it does a couple of things. One, it keeps Africans complacent for one, and another, it furthers uh, if it it, it it furthers intensifies class divisions in the African community. Which is um, which, uh, and 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 as long as we stay divided, uh, you know, uh, 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 along class or ethnic or or even profession lines, it becomes difficult for us to achieve uh, the type of uh, uh, you know political organization that's necessary to alleviate our oppression. So you're 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 right. It it it, it is sort of a smokescreen, and uh, and they're able to get away with it because um, uh, you know a lot of Africans aren't aren't aware of uh, you know some of the st- statistical information you just shared, and uh, you know and uh, you know and. Um, you know, it, it, you know, and um, you know, a lot of some Africans don't understand. It's about control, not just participation. And uh, and and uh, you know, and that and and that's critical, I think. And uh, you know, and I and I think uh, you, you you know the observation you 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 made are are are, are very valid. Along that line. Anyone else will contribute to that issue? Yeah, well, yes, I well. think it's you know definitely can be be um, seen seen for what it's worth that it's, that is a symbolic gesture or whatever, uh, and that you know in terms of the deep pockets of the. NBA is is not going very deep into the pockets, and uh, and certainly we have to recognize that. But nevertheless, at the same time, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem, and so you're either for it or against it. And uh, at this point, I would be for it uh, uh, because you know it, it helps it helps some. Uh, uh, it doesn't go deep enough and far enough as usual, but but. Uh, uh, it isn't a step in the right direction. Thank you. You know, you know, Brother Africa, it's, it's pretty hard, extremely difficult to raise the class issue when it comes to a situation like that. You have qualified, wealthy African men who are willing to buy a team, which according to the rules of the game, they should be able to buy a team. So the mere fact they were blocked by the other owners speaks values in terms of the racial uh, antagonism that exists in society. And one of the things I think is problematic for, for many of us who won't, don't want to see race in society and we keep alluding to the fact that everything is class, we fail to understand these kind of things happen exactly, you know, uh, you know the, the implications of such, such actions. But it seems to me, Brother Africa, it seems that, you know, knowing that uh, one, of the things, one of the things they don't want African people to do is to establish an economic foundation. That's what this is all about. 
This is exactly after the time of Reconstruction. One of the things, the first thing they did was create black laws, the black codes, all these things to, to ensure that African people don't create an economic base. That 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 understanding in terms of uh, maintaining oppression hasn't changed. The, the, the strategies are pretty much the same. It's always to, to deny African people economic base. So knowing that, what African people have to do, given them upon the wealth that you do possess, then you got to use it wisely. Uh, you can't uh, you, you can't uh, create up a scenario where you have these false equivalents, where you see you know uh, access to wealth on the same scale that. Uh, White folks may have access to, to wealth. Uh, I think it's a mistake to do that uh, from a tactical and a, in, a, in, a, in a strategic point of view. I think it's more wise to simply say use the wealth that you have in terms of building, number one, to protect the, the young people in terms of their, their, their emotional and psychological vulnerabilities in a system which is very much uh, uh, and um, uh, 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 opposed you know, to, uh, the, the, to, to, to the uh, uh, empowerment of youth. So one of the things we have to do, first and foremost, is make sure we create the proper conditions to make sure that young people are protected in both in terms of emotional and psychological health. Uh, we can do that, but you don't need large sums of money in terms of achieving that end. Secondly, uh, you know, one of the things we got to do is just create, create the kind of conditions to make sure that our children grow up knowledgeable. We have no choice. They have to grow up knowledgeable. And this notion in terms of, you know, that listen, I'm living well, I'm okay, so I don't care about anybody else's child. That kind of thinking has to go out, but go by the wayside because clearly we're all in this together. And so even if you're living in the suburbs, it doesn't matter because one of the real ironies is that as the system continues to deteriorate, and we talk about the expansion of fascism, one of the things you got to understand is that the first people going to be attacked by the people who are isolated, those Africans out there in those areas in which they think they're living large. So clearly, you know, Brother Africa, you know, strategically we got to exercise thinking about what we do. And, you know, and if we have enough wealth in, this, in the country, do the kind of things and truly empower ourselves. And if that empowerment means that we look outside of America in terms of the kind of things we need in terms of the empowerment of our people inside of America, then that's what we have to do. But first and foremost, we have to understand, you know, uh, we have to have a collective understanding in terms of why certain things have to be done. So we're still struggling in terms of this collective part of getting people to understand why certain things have to be done. We're still fighting these fights, you know, uh, around, you know, around, uh, you know, around ideology. We still have these fights around around um, uh, identity issues, you know, we have all these fights, you know, which, which are really superficial. The bottom line is that the fight has to be over the destruction of capitalism because capitalism is, in fact, the enemy. So it seems to me, you know, that, you know, uh, once we come to the realization that, you know, that we have the resources, you know, we have the talent, all we have to do is organize it, then we can empower ourselves. We truly can empower ourselves, so we're going to have to because as long as we think that we're going to play by the rules of this man's game, I think this thing allows us to win at his game, it's not going to happen. Keep in mind, this is not China. You see, when they close up all the shops, all the factories, and move all the factories to China, uh, the whole intent was to manipulate, to uh, exploit China to, for, for, for future gain. Well, the Chinese fooled them, and the Chinese said, no, no, we're not going to play that game. You know what I'm saying? You know, now that we're we going to build our economy, we're, true, we're, free, we're free to do what we want to do. Uh, and that, which means that we have to create a different paradigm in terms of how the world operates around economics, and that's what we're going to do. Well, in, in America, as, a, as, as African people, as an internal colony, one of the things that they're not going to do, they're not going to afford you that same opportunity. Even though when we talk about terms of the ability to exploit large of African people is there, even, even though we've we got to keep in mind we're talking about a different reality right now. And so in, historically, uh, you know, Labor would have been very useful in terms of, in terms of as, as a means to exploit the African population 
simply because you got so many quote unquote workers in African community and we should support. And so therefore you invest in the black community, African community simply because there's some there's some proceeds to be had or some monies to be gained. Well that's no longer the situation. Now you got an internal African colony in which you know, in which there's no money being that no money can be made off of them, off of us. And so therefore what happens is that whatever monies that wealthy people have go toward economies outside of the United States, you know, for their own personal enrichment. So it seems to me, just from a from a from a from a systemic point of view, that we can understand the fundamental reality is that things are not what they used to be. And the situation for African people becoming more and more grim by the day. We have to, we don't have a choice. We have to we have to form in strategies and tactics in terms of empowerment, in terms of protecting the minds of our young people, in terms of um, forming certain kind of values in our children, making sure that they critically can think about things. We have to do that. We can no longer wait for others to do that for our children or for ourselves. We have to do it ourselves. So I'll close with that. Okay. And Brother Moses, I'd like you to take a lead on this, and we'd like to get your thoughts on this issue. Recently I've been reading some information on you know, this new uh, police reform bill and laws that are going through on this Congress, coming through on this Congress. And we know the many things that the people are asking for is to try to put put uh the police the police institution in check. And based upon the new bills that are coming up, it has been reported that the new bills could have an increase to fund police more, to give them more money. They can have bills and rules and laws to put in place that's already put in place by the state. But seeing there no change. For example, in many states, they already have certain rules where they have to have on their body cam, etc. But they could be putting rules that are already in existence on the state level. And people are saying now that basically this administration is doing nothing more than what the other ones have done. And they are really strengthening the hands of the police department and not weakening it when it comes to how they apply and enforce laws and rules against communities of non-European status. Your response to that? Yes. Um, well, I'm I'm still becoming more and more familiarized with this this new this uh, new uh, laws that they're passing uh, and. I know this they're saying they're outlawing chokeholds and different things. Uh, exactly, um, Moses. Exactly. They're saying they're going to outlaw chokeholds, but what they're doing is they can maintain that you can do a chokehold, but they're going to give it a different name. So, therefore, mm. they can say, we don't do chokeholds no more, but they're still choking you to death. Those kind of things. What's up with that after all the loyalty that the African people has given this administration? How you mm-hmm. feel about that? How y'all feel about that, Pastor? What can we learn again from from African people give their allegiance to either one of those parties and they get nothing back from it? Uh, actually, uh, Africans have been doing this for nearly a hundred and uh, uh, thirty-five years now, and uh, and the thing, and uh, and I think. The lesson that the lessons that we need to draw from it is that we need to form 
our own independent political party. Uh, because the Democratic and Republican parties represent uh, similar political interests. They represent the interests of the uh, European ruling class. With, um, you know, with a few, um, and uh, I mean, there are, there are some uh, African multimillionaires, but they uh but they do not by any means uh control the system they're subservient to it if anything and uh and that is why uh and uh the system is designed to prevent us from gaining control and uh and that and that's something that we have to convey to our youth and uh and uh you, you you know that we're not in control and uh and the thing about it though having a few uh people with a lot of money does not change that uh and uh we have to uh form our own uh political or or or, or organization independent of the Democratic and Republican duopoly. So, Brother Africa, you talking about you talking about HR one? That's is that what you're talking about? Uh, they got a COVID, uh, um, a COVID some kind of law where it implies or deal with also to some administration and functioning of the police. And right. um, I think it's HR one. And there have been many um, um, complaints about. This law, this law is doing the total opposite. Well, and, um, it's, it's smoke. Sc- yeah, well, yes, it's, yeah, well, it's, it's yeah, well, it's it's, it's smoke screening. I, I I don't know what it is, what what it is with some of our people. Why we continue to persist in this fantasy about the fact that the Democratic Party gives a damn about us? I I don't know what that is. I you know I often think about that, and I smile to myself. I'm like, well, you know, maybe. Maybe people understand something I don't understand. If they can provide some clarity for me, maybe <laughs> I would appreciate it because I'm, I'm at a loss. I'm confounded. I really don't understand this fascination in terms of the Democratic Party. But clearly one of the things that we understand that the first line of defense uh, for the power structure, whether it be Democratic or Republican, is what? It's the police. That's their job. I mean, their job is the main show is to uphold the system. And in order to do that, it has to, uh, it has to dispense uh, uh, ruthlessness. It has to. It has no choice. Because we're all these people who don't have jobs, uh, uh, who have no place to live, who don't have access to food, who are, are ill-educated. What you gonna do with all of these people? These people are going leaps and bounds. Uh, recent, you know, recent most most uh, recent unemployment statistics jumped by 15 million people. What are you gonna do with what do you do with all these millions upon millions of people? You know, who who, who don't have a future? Well, you got to have police, and you got to be ruthless, and you got to be brutal, uh, and they understand that. And so, therefore, Joe Biden, Joe Biden is no fool. He's a beneficiary of the system. Him, Nancy Pelosi, they make lots and lots of money. They understand as long as they play the game, they're going to continue to make lots and lots of money. They have no incentive to change it. This is why when you talk about truly constraining the police, hush, hush, you don't get response, because they understand, you know, the police is the first line of defense in terms of protecting the system, and so therefore they understand that. And because they benefit from the system, they want the police to dispense as much brutality as they possibly can. 
and particularly when this brutality is directed, directed toward you know African and or poor people, then they really don't give a damn. So you know what I mean? To the extent that it's possible that they may give a damn is once they start beating richer people, and that ain't going to happen. But these cops are scared to, to do that to rich people. Certain neighborhoods they they don't they, they even watch how they talk to the people. But in more impoverished neighborhoods, they're very very uh very very uh. Uh, very, very uh, 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 short, I mean, extremely disrespectful to the people they talk to, simply because the perception is that these people have no power. So clearly, you know, Brother Africa, you know, no one expects HR1 to be anything meaningful in terms of making any meaningful resolve in terms of, you know, police killing people, beating people, and so forth and so on. That is going to go on unabated. Nothing's going to change that reality. Nothing's going to change that until capitalism is over and done with. And, and, and as, far as, as far as getting rid of capitalism, of course, we know we got a long struggle ahead of us in terms of achieving that objective. I want to add something to uh, to what Haki, Brother Haki stated. Uh, the reason, uh, let's see, uh, some history is in order here. Uh, 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 when Africans uh, 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 got the right to vote, they were overwhelmingly Republicans. That changed around uh, 1928, or roughly thereabouts, or in the early 30s, uh, with the election of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt as president of the U.S. He is credited with getting the U.S. out of the de- uh, out of the Great Depression. And uh, and since uh, and since his, his uh, time in office, Africans who who vote have been overwhelmingly Democratic. So that's what that that's where that switch came, because prior to that, Afri- uh, Africans who voted were overwhelmingly Republican, and that's because the Democratic Party. Was the party of the slaveocracy, which uh, uh, a lot of Africans have forgotten, and uh, so that's why uh, you know uh, that's a major reason why so uh, uh, so many Africans who vote vote Democratic today. But, but, you know, the, the, one of the ironies, though, uh, Brother Anthony, is that, you know, even when you talk about the emergence of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, all of those policies that he acted in terms of ending the Great Depression, keep in mind, none of those benefit African people. So the kind of racism during the Democratic Party at that time was also evident. So it, it's very interesting. You're right. Clearly, uh, African people left the Republican Party, something they became more racist, more reactionary, and so African people left and, and supported Democrat as, as a tactic. And wasn't able to naive in terms of understanding that the, the, the kind of systematic injustice inflicted upon them was administered both by Republicans and Democrats. They understood that, but from a tactical point of view, they went to Democrats simply because that's the two evils. And uh, at least you have some possible in terms of impact and some change in terms of people who at least will hear your case in terms of the kind of uh, your case against the kind of oppression that's being uh, dealt against you know African people. Uh, but clearly, Brother Africa, I mean, uh, but, but clearly, you know, this whole notion in terms of this indifference in terms of African people across the board, Democratic and Republican, has a long history. And so the problem is that, you know, uh, I think Brother Africa is correct. I think the issue is that what we have to do, we need an independent party for tactical reasons. Uh, it's not a question in terms of whether or not you're viable, whether or not you can win. That's not the issue. 
issue for tactical reasons, you need to do it because at least you can highlight those issues that are pertinent to the African community and the process, you know, facilitates some kind of organization uh, which is so badly needed in the African community. Uh, clearly, when we talk about the class divide in the African community, uh, wealthy African people don't want to hear this stuff about this uh, struggle. They want to hear this stuff about in terms of unity. Um, that's not across the board. That's many of them. There are, there are some who are very, very uh, radical in terms of their thinking. Uh, but for the most part, most of them don't want to hear anything in terms of organization, you know, work together to resolve these problems in terms of in terms of capitalism, because they very much not only benefit from capitalism, but they identify with capitalism, just to shame to say, you know, I benefit from capitalism. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, you know, uh, tactically, the only thing we reasonably we can do in terms of real empowerment is an independent party. Of course, we tried that back in 68. If you go further back, you know, uh, the, uh, you know we tried it. Uh, you know, in Laws, in Laws County, uh, Alabama. So we, so we have this history in terms of trying these third parties, but it seems to me we have to continue along those along that vein in terms of creating a third party, because in terms of as a tactic, is the only way to true empowerment you know, for African people. Well, creating a party outside of this process—that's another option as well. I think well, that's, that's, that's what. But but that's what that's it, but that's what third party does is, is is operating outside of the two main parties. That's precisely what it does. I mean, that can be legitimized by the system. I mean, they're not going to legitimize it. You mean you know I mean if we can fight in terms of to 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 try to get it to try to get it, uh, you know, uh, 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 legitimized, we can attempt to do that. But of course, we understand that this duopoly in terms of Republican Democrat is very much the uh, uh, the mainstay, you know, of capitalist America. So they have no interest in terms of third party. So it's not going to be legitimized. But it operates on the fringes, and which means that you know at least you get the opportunity to articulate those things that are important, but more importantly, to create this, this, this aura in terms of organization and why it's so important in terms of moving forward. In that way, we can bridge that class division that exists in African unity with wealthy, uh, with the wealthy, with the wealthy uh, uh, Africans may not deal in terms of struggle, but at least they would identify in terms of the party, party politics. So, from that point of view, I think it's a tactical thing to do. And on that note, you're listening to Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for this calls. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, what's going on in your world and community. And we hope to have a special guest on. We would like to talk a little bit about education and its relationships to, social, um, to racism, followed by the theme tonight, the money game and control, part three. We'll be right back. We're in the seat, and we're going to take the heat. We're going to define it, and we're going to stand behind it. This is Africa on the Moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Palestine. needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Palestine. needs our love. love. 
There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine... Needs her, freedom. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Palestine. Needs her freedom. Palestine. Needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone, so all the world will know that Palestine Needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our love, needs Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Oh, my news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the life I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care for soon there where our lives won't be in danger, and when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah. Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. 
Pellerino! You can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino is the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Some, some some characteristics 
and some issues that these three movies all have in common. The Black Panther was when Judas and the Raya of the Messiah, and this movie, Coming to America, Part 2. I find those three movies very interesting. They have a certain commonality. And for me, some of those commonalities are to get our people to internalize and psychologically accept our enemy and join the enemy. For example, when you look at one of the serious messages that came out of the Panther movie, they talk about engaging the impression that there's nothing wrong with allied with the CIA. When you look at Judas and the Rise of the Messiah, it's a movie totally being um, uh, created for the interest of glamorizing, keeping praise to an informal, and let them tell his story, to sympathize with him, to humanize him. Is it acceptable? to be a informer, to be a snitch against your people. And when you look at this movie, uh, Coming to America 2, I find that real interesting. I had a chance to look at it today for the first time. And one of the things it did, and I think it's like a lead-off from the end of the Panther movie, is that they are telling you, get prepared for a new Africa. A new Africa will be dominated clearly by European values, European principles, and all those things that you have traditionally known to be yours, they no longer have any kind of credibility or legitimacy. It's telling you to hate yourself. You know, I wasn't all that happy with the messages that came out of this America, um, this, 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 this film on Coming to America number two. Because what it did, it would tell you, reject all of the things that are you, and accept all those things that come from a European history, culture, and standard. Really interesting. So I just wonder if y'all would like to maybe um, speak to that. The mic is open. Okay. Um, I would uh, I would add in the movie that was made about Harriet Tubman into that into that mix also. And uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, that it does is uh, they they distort African history for one, and uh, another is it causes division among those Africans that are that are trying to uh, you know. Resurrect African values and whatever, and uh, put down. And also, it also uh, intensifies uh, the division between the African man and the African woman. And uh, so, uh, those are some of the threads I see running through all of those movies that are coming, uh, you know, out of Hollywood recently. And uh, because Hollywood is controlled by the, uh, you know, by the ruling class, it uh, it tends to uh, te- uh, uh, push ideas from a ruling class perspective, and that is one of the ways in which uh, the working class in this society is inculcated with ruling class ideas, 
even though it goes against their own interests. Yeah, well, Brother Africa, you know, um, propaganda uh, is the epitome of uh, capitalist society. Uh, Society can't function without propaganda. And certainly media plays a big role in terms of facilitating certain ideas. And clearly when you when you talk about these two particular movies, clearly they're all questionable in terms of in terms of content. But one more importantly, Brother Africa, one of the things I recently read an article and the brother was talking about the fact that a lot of times, in particular when you talk about um, uh Judas and the Messiah or the Black Panther movies, one thing that was interesting is that a lot of times they have uh black Actors from different parts of the world coming here playing these parts. In, in, in relation to the Judas and the Messiah, they have this brother out of, out of the UK who come here and play that part. Now, there's nothing wrong with him playing that part per se. In fact, one of the, I tell you, I got to tell you, I'm a big admirer of Idris Elba in terms of his work on the wire. I think he's a very good actor. But one thing that's interesting when you talk about these historical movies, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that a certain kind of, aside from you know, words, uh, there's certain kind of nuances that are taking place in terms of appreciating that movie. And so the gestures, the words used, how the words are used, all those things have, have implications or it has meaning, very deep meaning. And so unfortunately, a lot of times you have people who come from different, different cultures who, who don't actually understand the nuances in terms of behavior, uh, context, or even speech. Uh, it loses something in terms of translation. So I think even though the brother is a good actor per se, but one of the things that he doesn't come across in terms of someone who, who legitimately grew up in, in America who understands the racial, the racial institution and the impact those institutions have on the minds of African people in the society. And so therefore he's ill-equipped to actually give that kind of, that, give that kind of present that kind of nuance in terms of performance. Uh, one of the things, and not to criticize the brother too much, but one of the things is that when I saw him in Black Panther, uh, one of the things that he he doesn't come across to me in terms of, uh, in terms of you know uh, real connectedness in terms of the African roots, he comes across to me as more Western Westernized. And so, in, in other words, when I look at him act, he comes across as someone who sees great legitimacy in terms of the Western way of doing things, and by devaluing African way of doing things. So therefore, you know, one of the things when we talk about propaganda, and so when you elevate you know uh, actors from different parts of the world to play these historical figures, it loses something in translation. That's not to put these brothers and sisters down because that's not the issue. The issue is when we talk about the role of propaganda. So if they can use, you know, uh, actors from different parts of the world to sort of play down the the, the central tenets of that movie. In other words, if they create a situation where uh, it, to ensure that people don't get the, the the deepness of the message, then it's it's a, it's a win for propaganda. And so I'm very much concerned about that. But 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 again, brother Africa, you know, one of the things we got to be very clear on, you know, that propaganda is very much uh, part and parcel in terms of what they do. And when you talk about Black Panther in terms of the relationship to the CIA, this attempt to legitimize the CIA, I thought that was funny. In addition to that, I thought it was very, very very, 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 I thought very somewhat uh, strange. But the fact that when he started talking about when, when, when the sister said to him, want to use their power to help people, to help Africans around the world fight back against their oppression, and he said, no, 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 I'm, not, I'm the president of Wakanda, not of the world. That's very, very interesting. That's very, very interesting cop out because it seems to me that it was a convenient way, a very slick way in terms of playing down the global oppression of African people to simply say that I'm, I'm, I'm a, I represent Wakanda, Wakanda only, and my concern in terms of suffering of African people throughout the diaspora is not my concern. So I thought it was a very slick piece of propaganda. So, you know, uh, clearly, Brother Africa, you know, we got to understand when we look at these movies, 
we got to be able to deconstruct, and we, we have to be very, very critical. And it's key that our children grow up understanding. When you sit down with your children and watch these movies, point the stuff out to your children so they have developed that critical uh, insight in terms of understanding just how pernicious this, this thing of propaganda really is in the society. And to add to the last point, uh, Brother Hackey, and then we're going to bring on our guests, uh, just for the listening audience, I think on the Panther movie, one of the most critical images and ideas that came from that movie was the last scene that was shown on that movie after the critics in terms of what the new family structure would look like in Africa. And when they came out with this European Jesus, Jesus person with the African sisters and some, and some youth, I thought that was a very powerful, dangerous message that they sent. I don't think a lot of people caught that. But anyway, this world of propaganda is intensified. Brothers and sisters, we need to become more conscious and more alert. And in terms of the question that you raised, Brother Haki, about the act- actors and actresses coming from other countries, also we got to be careful in terms of them setting up the scenario and have Africans fighting each other around the world while at a time right now we are talking about coming more together as one. So I think it's also well, maybe brother, a dynamic that maybe plan, planning to that too as well. Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. My point is not to pit, I know that's not what you're saying. My point is not to pit Africans against Africans. That's not my point. My exactly. point in terms of the, thing, the things that they do in terms of perpetuating the effectiveness of propaganda. And so they can use other people from around the world who are not privy to these, these struggles, uh, you know, who are not uh, sensitive in terms of these struggles, then it makes the propaganda that much more effective. And so this is being done by utilizing people who are maybe, maybe not best suited in terms of those roles, you know, from a historical point of, view, point of view, in terms of bringing out those kind of nuances when it comes to, you, you know, uh, presenting, uh, you know, people like, uh, 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 you know, like brother in, brother in Chicago. So that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to pit Africans and Africans. That's not my thing. I'm not one who say you know, um, you know, that we're different. I'm not one of those Africans who say that, that nonsense. I'm very much clear in terms of who I am as an African person, and I'm very clear that we in this struggle together. I'm very clear on that point. I'm saying that if if those people in positions of power can utilize us for the for the purpose of terms of facilitating oppression, then that's what they do. And we got to understand that 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 reality. And that's all I'm saying. I'm not pitting anybody against oh. anybody, and that's not my intent. My, you know, for instance, yeah, uh, you know, like, and for instance, one of the things that when they had uh, played in South Africa, you had these, you had Af- African American actors playing, playing, you know, parts, you know, of AMC, you know, Mandela, and I'm like, what the hell? You got actors in South Africa who do a much better job in terms of bringing out, you know, the nuances in terms of what it is in terms of to be South African, what is the growth in that era, you know, to, to know Mandela, to talk to him, you know, you know, it was. So those guys much more in a much more a feasible position in terms of being able to bring out the most in terms of people actually understanding and appreciating uh, the roles that the ANC and Manila play in terms of the, the destruction of uh, apartheid. So that all I'm saying is that we got to be clear as an African person, you know, that anytime you know, uh, you know, uh, when these historical figures come up, we got to be clear that we got to be clear. Perhaps there is some there's some. There is some there is there is some justification for having an actor from abroad play this part that they're not revealing to me. So that's all I'm saying. So we got to be very very clear in terms of very careful of somewhat circumspect in terms of understanding, you know, that uh, they may not they may give us these roles not because they're committed in terms of our abilities in terms of acting, 
or more to in terms of uh, abilities, you know, to minimize the impact of that particular individual that we have that being betrayed on the screen. That's my own point. That's my only point. And I agree with you, Brother Haki, and I'm going to deal with your point because your point is well taken. But I'm just saying from the enemy point of view, they allowed to be also be doing it. It's more to facet. They're also allowed to be doing it also to create the conditions, situations where we begin to use that as a means to fight against each other. That's all I was saying. They have many, you know, a lot of times they create scenarios where there are many sets of multi-sensor objectives. So we just need to be aware of it. No problem. So right now you're listening to Africa on the Move. What we're going to do real quickly, we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we're going to have with us, I guess, Sister Camille Landry. She's going to talk a little bit about the relationship between this education system and racism. We'll be right back, and she's going to share with us what's going on in that area. You'll listen to Africa on the Move. Hey, 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 what's up, man? Brother, what's up? Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and kiss here today. Pick it light and pick it fast. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me. So you can see oh, what's, going on? what's going on What's going on Yeah, what's going on Oh, what's going on Oh, oh. Right
welcome back to Africa on the Move. And we're about to find out what's going on with our special guest. We'd like to welcome her back, Sister Camille Landry. She's going to talk to us a little bit about this theme and subject area, the relationship between these educational institutions, and this question of racism. We'd like to welcome her back. She is a political organizer, a businesswoman. She's a loving person. She has many skills and many talents. And we would like to welcome her back to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Sister Camille. Thank you, Brother Lee. I appreciate you having me on. I want to make a comment about the last topic. And very simply, the, uh, the, the institutions that oppress you cannot and will not ever make you free. And if anybody expects a movie like Black Panther or Lord Help Us Coming to America, that sequel, which was so full of buffoonery and ridiculousness and negative images of African people Mm -hmm. to do anything other than make some white folks some money and some misguided black folks some money, then I got a bridge to sell you because you're one gullible individual. Um, we, We tend to put too much credence in institutions that we do not control and that are not built for us and that have no intentions of doing anything positive for us. And the educational system is one such institution. First of all, I know the listeners of this program understand that racism is an institutional, a systemic issue. We're not talking about how somebody feels about you. We're not talking about somebody's opinion about you. We're talking about structural policy-based issues that, lead to and, and, and create the oppression that we all labor under. Dismantling and disrupting that and creating racial justice in our individual relationships and our institutions is no easy task, and it's fraught with obstacles. Uh, racism is so firmly rooted in American history and experience that the author Audre Lorde said, racism is so much a part of America that a lot of people think that protesting racism is protesting America. This is in no place more true than it is in the educational system. They say, go to school, our parents tell us. Our elders say, behave, study hard, take the tough courses. They say, respect your teachers, and then you'll get into college, and then you're on your way to a good job and a happy life. If you just put in the work, you'll be rewarded. That's the promise. It sounds great, right? Like maybe it's even true. But the fact is that education and the institutions that provide it play a critical role in institutionalized racism. Racism starts at conception and continues to affect us until the day we die. It is a a foundational part of the institutions of education in this country. Every facet of education, from childcare to preschool and throughout elementary, secondary, post-secondary education, even vocational and on-the-job training, institutional racism rears its ugly head. But the closer you look, the more this promise, it's clear, is not only a fantasy, it's a dirty trick. Nobody's denying that education is important. It's just that the path to achievement and advancement is easier for some people than for others, and those differences are, are almost wholly issues of class and race. African people 
faced barriers to success every single day from a very early age that whites never have to think about, much less worry about. Education is important, and confronting racism in education is important because education is so central to all social institutions. It is where a lot of our ideas about the way things are supposed to be are, are, are generated and reinforced. It's also important to note that all of these issues that I'm going to talk about are very intersectional. And by that, I mean they're connected and they compound each other. Gender, socioeconomic status or class, sexual identity, ethnicity, religion, nationality, and even geography are heavy influencers of educational outcomes and of other life chances. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the phenomena and some of the issues that characterize and preserve racism in education. First of all, it starts early. It affects us from conception to the grave. Maternal and infant mortality among African women is higher in the United States than in any other first or second world nation on the face of this earth. A black woman with a master's or a doctorate degree is more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman with an eighth grade education. And when you add in diminished access to health care, healthy food, housing, water, air, security, is it any wonder that the infant mortality rate for Africans in the USA is equivalent to that of women in underdeveloped nations? We have a lower uh, rate of outcome, positive outcome of pregnancy than the people of Ecuador. And the difference is Ecuador is working hard to do something about that. So you've got African children, who, many of whom are starting off with health issues that um, are part of the intrinsic racism that their parents experienced before they were even uh, air breathers. When they were still in their mama's womb, there were assaults going on against those young black bodies. Now, do you remember preschool or kindergarten? You learn to write your name, you learn your address, you play with dolls and blocks, you jump in puddles. That's what we think about when we think about preschool. But you know what else is part of that experience? Racism. It turns out that black students are much more likely to be suspended even from preschool. African students make up 18% of all preschoolers in this country, but we represent almost 50% of the preschool suspensions. Compared to white people, white children make up about 43% of preschool enrollment, but they represent only 26% of those receiving suspension. Now, why is this? One of the major reasons um, is that African children do not have the privilege of innocence in America. Black kids as young as 10 are viewed by white people and often by other African people as much older, much more mature, and therefore much more guilty of minor infractions. Uh, An African child who's four years old and has a meltdown in the preschool for whatever reasons is likely to be punished as if he were a 12-year-old who ought to be well beyond the point where he loses his, 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 you know, his, his togetherness in a classroom. Um, also, the fact that our schools, the schools that our children attend, are staffed by 
uh, law enforcement officers, gun-carrying policemen, and, and security guards, and they are the people that are responding to disciplinary infractions. When you and I went to school, Lee, if you talked back to a teacher, you got sent to the principal's office, they called your mama, your mama came up there and straightened you out. Nowadays, they call the police. And we see preschoolers being perp-walked out of American classrooms in handcuffs. And the likelihood of that happening is far higher if that preschooler is African. Black students represent about 19% of students with disabilities in this country. And even that is a faulty number because often we are assigned that category even when it's not justified. But a ridiculous of those with disabilities who are restrained, I mean physically restrained, I'm talking about being strapped into a chair or placed into a cell inside a classroom, are African students. When black and white students commit similar infractions in school, black students are suspended and expelled three times more often than white students. We make up 16% of student enrollment in public schools, but we represent 27% of students who are referred to law enforcement and 31% of students subjected to arrest. But white students, on the other hand, who are over half of the enrollment in school, are very seldom referred to law enforcement, very seldom arrested. Another problem that we have is that the majority of teachers in public schools are white and they frequently fail to recognize culturally-based behavior and instead think of it as misbehavior. And this results in kids being punished and labeled for behavioral and personality conflicts that are not inappropriate. They are just the way that African people behave. For instance, uh, teachers can often mistake uh, a black preschoolers' chattiness for hyperactivity or bad behavior instead of recognizing that that child is a skilled storyteller. And as such, that storytelling ability is, is, is praised in the home setting. But when the child takes that same behavior to school, then they get accused of talking too much. A child that hesitates to raise their hand first and defers to older or more dominant students because African people are taught to respect our elders, even if those elders are other children who are just more mature, can be mistaken by teachers as being uninformed or disinterested or limited in some way. A, a child's habit of not staring a teacher in the face when they're talking to them can be characterized as that child being dishonest rather than that child not cutting his eyes at the teacher. Teacher ain't never heard about cutting eyes, but that child has been taught from birth that you don't give that kind of look to an adult. You keep your eyes down. You keep your face straight. So another issue is that within public school districts, both recruitment and hiring practices leave out black and brown educators and pay them less than their peers. And so what we've got is a situation of an institution that the vast majority of African students in the, and their families in this country are reliant upon. As a matter of fact, you are required to provide education for your child. You can go to jail if you don't. Um, is rooted in racism. I want to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. 
and and Lee, interrupt me if I'm moving fast because I was late coming on, and no. I want to get this information no, out here. Sister, sister, we want to check your time. We have plenty of flexibility. We want you to share this information with our people. Don't leave out one word. The mic is yours. All righty. So right now, as of uh, 2019, the last year for which I have data, there are more than 45,000, they call them school resource officers, but they are police and other sworn police officers. They could be deputies or deputy sheriffs and so forth. An additional 40,000 security guards, all of them armed, working in our public schools. And they are disproportionately placed in black and brown majority schools. Now, we know when we hear about school shootings and that kind of thing, if it's a student doing the shooting, that student is not likely to be an African child. Nonetheless, our children are subjected to having these armed law enforcement officers controlling their moves. And that is part of the reason, a main reason, for the school-to-prison pipeline, which is a very real thing. It channels our students straight into the criminal justice system, where, being African, they can expect unfair treatment is just a matter of course. So I've seen experiences, uh, one of my own godsons, Boy, some some little boy called him a nigger, and he fired up this little boy. He lit him up. Okay, this is a playground squabble. Now, kids in school fight. It ended up with the black child, the African child, being led out of school in handcuffs and having misdemeanor charges of assault and battery filed against him. They did not consider it assault when this white child called this called the African child out of his name. So the African child ends up with a charge in the criminal court system. His mama's got to take time off from work, hire a lawyer, and go into school. And then the black child is expelled from the school, and there just went his chances of going to college. That child wanted to, be, to grow up to be a pharmacist. He's now working um, at Sam's Club doing, you know, stocking groceries and stuff at the warehouse store because his college, college, college scholarship that he had lined up disappeared into thin air once he had this arrest on his record for assault. His life has been ruined. So is it any wonder that our children who experience these repeated suspensions and expulsions um, just decide that the heck with it, they're going to drop out? Because a disproportionate number of the children who leave school before graduation are African, Latino, or Native. The graduation rates for those students lag far behind the rate for white students. In some schools in America, um, the number of children that start high school, by the time they get to 12th grade, less than 50% of those students are still enrolled in school. They're not enrolled. There's no hope of their graduation. They've just stopped being there. One of the biggest factors in terms of quality of education is the zip code that you live in because where you live determines what kind of education you're going to receive. And the United States is an entirely segregated nation. The vast majority of people in this country of any color live in a neighborhood that is predominantly occupied by people of the same color. 
And this racial residential segregation is a fundamental cause of disparities in, in education, in health, and in everything else. This physical separation of the races was enforced as it, part of institutional racism by this very government. Redlining, uh, which means not being able to get a mortgage, often not even being able to get a look at a house that's for sale outside of a certain area, is still an issue in America right now today. And despite the absence of law that that um, governs this kind of segregation, it is very much a reality for people in this country. This is hugely significant when it comes to K through 12 education and really even from co for college education. Brown versus the Board of Education did away with separate but equal in 1954, but school systems are more segregated today than they were in 1970. And they're anything but equal. First of all, the schools that our kids tend are chronically underfunded because school Funding is tied to the real estate market, is tied to property taxes. That's the way schools are funded in America. So if you live in a neighborhood that has low property values and therefore low property taxes, your schools are underfunded. Uh, our children attend, scores, uh, attend schools rather that frequently don't even have certified teachers. The elementary school that's down the street from my bookstore here in Oklahoma City started out the year two years ago with three qualified, certified teachers in the entire building. All the rest of those teachers serving 400 and some odd children, all of, all of whom, virtually all of whom were African children, all, those three certified teachers and the rest of them were substitutes and teachers on what they call an emergency certification, which means that they were not education majors, that they don't have any training in how to run a classroom and how to teach our children in pedagogy, in other words. And that's what we get for teachers. We know that our students receive lower scores on standardized math and language tests than other groups, and we know that they are underrepresented in advanced courses. Okay, so one of the ways that you get into college and do well is to take advanced placement courses. But the um, the educational establishment does not allow non-certified teachers to teach those advanced courses. So if you're attending a school where the teachers are not certified, those advanced courses are not even an option for you. We also know that negative and racist social messages about black students' academic abilities and strengths undercut those students' own views of themselves and hurt test performance. We know that those stereotypes affect the way their teachers see them. Their teachers see a young brother coming into the classroom and he's joking around and, and, and talking to the girls and so forth, and what they see is a thug. They do not see a warrior. They do not see a scholar. They do not see a child with potential. They see a child who is a problem. We know that the strengths of our children, like strong oral t storytelling skills and the ability to memorize information, because you ask any little brother or sister on the street about the lyrics or something, and they go spit it out in a heartbeat. But 
standardized tests don't measure these gifts that we have. We know that black students are not admitted to gifted and talented programs uh, that just leave them by the wayside. And we know that they are more likely to attend schools with inexperienced and low-performing teachers, low-paid teachers, or teachers who are just, you know, one year out of, of college. We know that our children are attending schools with no textbooks. My own daughter in an AP history class three years running did not have a textbook. There are no textbooks. Again, the school down the street from me has no math textbooks for many of its classes. The teacher is photocopying the textbook and handing out a few pages at the time. And these are packets that are going home to children who are home because of the pandemic. And so when the parent is trying to help the child with the math homework, there is no other section of the book that the parent can put their hands on to try to figure out what was taught before, what comes after, and to put it in context. And so is it any surprise to anybody that our children are falling behind? The fact of the matter is most African children get about 15 years of pub, if they stay in through 12th grade, 15 years uh, for the majority of them of public education because our kids start off in Head Start. Why? Because black families know that education is critical to our survival. So we put our kids in preschool early. They are in, they're in daycare because we got to work. Very few black mamas have the option of staying home with their babies and teaching them until their school age. So when these children are subjected to racism, when they are literally still in the playpen, how do you expect them to survive? How do you expect them to thrive? How do you expect them to flourish? Now, I'm not sure how much time do we have left, Brother Lee. Sister, you have a good fifteen, twenty minutes or more if you want if you need it. You go ahead. Okay. Time is, okay, time is no I, problem. I want to talk about college because post secondary does not mean post racial in the great US of A. When you consider the education that our children experience in the pre-K through 12th grade situation, any wonder that the vast majority of African students coming out of 12th grade have to get remedial education before they can even uh, attack their college, you know, approach a college level course. These, through no fault of their own, these children have reading scores that are so low have math scores that are so low that they cannot take college courses. I can speak from experience here in Oklahoma City, the community colleges. Community colleges are frequently the uh, targeted colleges for children who live in urban America and also for children who attend rural schools. They often do not matriculate straight into a four-year university. But whether they do or not, the vast majority of African students who do pursue a higher education have to undergo remedial education before they are able to tackle college courses. So this means that you're spending more years in school, you're taking out more college loans, you're saddled with an even higher level of debt. And Lord help you if you start college and take out these loans and then find out that you can't handle the workload and drop out because those loans will follow you until the day you die. They will deduct money for your college loans 
from your Social Security check. So a lot of colleges, understanding full well that institutional racism is an issue, have developed affirmative action programs and similar kinds of programs to ensure that students of color have a chance to take advantage of a higher education. Evidence that affirmative action does make a positive difference for our children and for the colleges themselves and society overall. Uh, we have factors in our own government. Um, might I name Betsy DeVos and, and, and the former administration's uh, Department of Education and much of the U.S. Congress and Senate who uh, trot out all sorts of debunked arguments about it and call affirmative action reverse racism. So we've got institutional factors that mean that even those few programs that exist to bring African children into a position where they can be admitted to and compete appropriately for grades for college education are being cut off at the kneecaps. Now, let's say that your black shining child does manage to get into college, does manage to find the money to pay for college, they are definitely not going to find some sort of post-racial wonderland waiting for them. One recent study that I looked at found that college professors of all races and genders, including black professors, respond more consistently to questions and requests from students with white-sounding names. If your name is Jonathan, you're going to do better than if your name is Kwame. They're going to make assumptions about you just based upon who you are. And that's not even dealing with the constant stress, racism, these micro and macro aggressions that our children face every day of their lives from the cradle to the grave is going to have in terms of of, of changing their ability, limiting their ability to do what they need to be doing, which is namely to be acquiring an education and preparing themselves for a positive adult life. Our students routinely take on more debt than white students. Well, part of the reason is we first hired, we first, I mean, we last hired and first fired and our parents don't have wealth. So, the vast majority of African students that do attend college have to take out large amounts of loans. And that puts pressure on them to get out of school and to take courses that are going to make them the most money, which might not be what they excel at, and to find jobs. But guess what? Black graduates are twice as likely to be unemployed as white graduates. Even African students who graduate with degrees in high-demand fields like engineering are struggling. 10% of black engineering graduates are unemployed compared to just 6% of all engineering graduates. So even if you take the courses that are supposed to lead to good-paying, high-paying jobs, that is no guarantee that it's going to happen. Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that shows that you're 50% less likely to get a job interview if, you're black, if your application has a black-sounding name. We see that systemic racism is a corrosive element in the education institution. And in order to do anything about it, we are going to have to do a number of things. One of them 
is to force the education system to understand that racism is a part of its institutional framework. It is not a one-off kind of situation. Racism doesn't mean a teacher who refers to her students as nigger. Racism means an institution of school that, that limits the life chances of our children from birth throughout their educational experience. We have to view race as a, co- as a social construct. We have to consider the issues, the intersectional issues, and we have to voice a counter-narrative. Not just the parents of students who are enrolled in those schools, but the people who, the African people who place themselves or who are, are placed in positions of leadership cannot afford to adopt the narrative society places on black children. If you walk into a school that's predominantly black, you are liable to find that teachers, the African teachers and the African uh, administrators are harsher on our own children than even the well-meaning white, white teachers who, are, who don't know what they're doing and have another set of, of racism issues. We, that institutionalized oppression that we suffer, the same institutionalized oppression that you were talking about in terms of films like Black Panther and Coming to America, exists in a very large way within our educational institutions where we take on the oppressor's opinion of us and the oppressor's approach to us and are harsher in our treatment of our own children than even our oppressors can be. So there is one tool that I would strongly recommend for dealing with this, and this is a, a tool called critical race theory. Now, critical race theory is a very revolutionary idea because it challenges liberal approaches to racial justice, and it instead tells us that we have to use dialectical materialism in terms of in the way that we look at these institutions such as education and the way that we respond to them. It's a, a theory that gives power to the people who are most affected by racism, and it offers researchers and educators a way to view racism in education by centering issues of race and by using counter stories to challenge dominant views in research and in practice. It means looking at the education of African children through an African lens. Okay? It means not accepting, not utilizing the language, the data, the worldview of oppression, but instead utilizing the language, the data, the stories of the people who are subjected to racism and coming up with solutions that are created from the grassroots up rather than being inflicted upon us by those in a position of power. The use of critical race theory legitimizes the fight against racism as the most fundamental thing that we have to do and talks true revolutionary change in the way that our children are educated rather than just a patchwork system of going in 
and attacking the most egregious things that affect us, but leaving that fundamental systemic racism untouched. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And on that note, Sister um, Camille, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to open up to our panelists. They have some questions and some responses that they would like to share with you as we continue the discussion dealing with education, racism, and obviously the U.S. way. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Marcus Gatenberg, come to town. Marcus Gatenberg, come to town. You can't get no food to eat. can't get no money to spend. You can't get no food to eat. can't get no money to spend. And you, hello, come to one come, oh, let me do what I can, for you or you alone, oh, you know the right and do it now.
the mood. Our special guest today is our sister Camille Landry. She's giving her perspective on the subject matter of education, racism, and I would say the U.S. way. We will continue the discussion, but at this point in time, we'll open up to our political panelists and listen to our listening audience. If you have any comments you'd like to make or any questions you'd like to ask, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841. We're dealing with this critical issue, and I think the sister is doing an excellent job of speaking truth to power. So, Camille, we will open up first to Brother Haki. Your questions or any comments, Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Thank you. Let me let me ask the sister. You know, one of the things you know, um, um, poverty kills. And when I say that, uh, recently, uh, well, not recently, uh, historically, neuroscientists talk about the impact of stress uh, on the human brain. Uh, in fact, they talk about the stress vulnerability model, which looks at in terms of you know how stress actually kills brain cells. And they go on to reason that in addition to the, the reduction of of, cell, of of cells in the human brain. Talk about the peculiar impact that he, on the prefrontal cortex of the human brain. And, of course, the prefrontal cortex is a part of the brain responsible for memory and learning. And when you think about the kind of enormous amount of stress, uh, you know, African youth are subjected to, uh, it does have an impact. So my question to you, what can we do as a community in terms of minimizing the kind of stress our, you know, our young people are subjected to? Because one of the things I keep talking about, we have to create a condition to protect our children. I don't think people understand when I keep saying that. That's essentially what I'm saying. So what is your response to my question? Well, for one thing, it's necessary for all aspects of of our communities to go to bat for our children, to do battle for our children. These uh, kinds of uh, policies that our boards of education institute in our schools, um, if if you get into any kind of scuffle in school, if you get, you know, if you get three strikes against you or whatever, you're suspended, this has to end. Now, that's a political process. Changing policy becomes a political process. I don't mean political just in terms of going to the polling place and voting. I mean, I'm talking about showing up in force to the school board and saying these policies are inherently racist because they are deployed against African children disproportionately and they ruin their lives. We will not stand for it. Either you stop, you break this school-to-prison pipeline, or we're going to sit home. We'll educate our own children. The other thing that's really very important is for all the existing institutions in our community to work together to educate our children, educate them about their history, educate them about our culture, educate them to let them know that they do have power and that, and that, they have to wield it if they want to change this society. Our children are not passive. The youth of our, of, of our community have been the ones that have been at the leadership of, uh, of all social change that's gone on in this country. And so we, can, we have to stop seeing our children as passive recipients of education and in, ter- in turn make our communities the driving force behind the education that our children receive. It's also really important to look at the way that racial oppression intersects with capitalism and understand that the whole idea of every institution in this country is to uphold the status. We've got to stop asking for a piece of pie and say we're going to bake a whole new cake. So 
you have to have a revolutionary approach to education when you're trying to fix it. Okay, one, other, one final question. Uh, during the developmental years, let's say between three to 12 years of age, uh, what specifically can we do in terms of combating the kind of stress our kids are subjected to? Is there anything that we can do in terms of minimizing the amount of stress? Well, for one thing, I, it was Che Guevara that said um, every revolutionary has as its heart, you know, is moving from a position of love. And so, yes, our children must be taught to respect teachers, to respect educators, to respect their elders, and to behave well in school. But listening to our children and demanding that our children have a fair shake in school is very critical for the survival of our children. Dr. Joy DeGruy talked about post-traumatic slave uh, syndrome and how every African person deals with this, that, that we actually undergo epigenetic changes so that our very cellular structure is changed by the stress we deal with of racism. So we have to do everything possible to protect our children from this. We have to stand up for our kids. Thank you. Nick, Brother Hampton, the mic is yours. Yes. Uh, Sister Camille, uh, uh, thank you for your presentation on this topic. Um, my uh, question, uh, or uh, uh, start off with a comment. Uh, the, pub, uh, the public educational system in the U.S. was created in order to uh, educate or to develop those people that would perpetuate capitalism, which, uh, which, as we know, is against our interests as a people. And, uh, and uh, so uh, the educational system is like a sieve. It actually, um, it actually uh, puts a lot of subjects, a lot of people, to this process in order to develop that intelligentsia that will perpetuate the ideas of capitalism. And so uh, the, the public educational system, and to a certain extent the private as well, uh, you know, uh, is designed to perpetuate the ideas of capitalism. Uh, which the U.S. was founded upon, and uh, so uh, so, what can um, can Africans do to uh, you know to uh, to counter this system, which works against our interests? You you talking some really revolutionary talk here, my brother, because that's what it's going to take to change this system. You are exactly right that this education system was developed, the purpose of the education system was to train people to be good factory workers. Public education became a thing at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, and its whole purpose was to create fodder for the, you know, for the, for the grist mill of capitalism, to turn people into good and reliable workers who would enrich the 1% the people that hold the wealth and control the wealth in this country. And race is just one facet of this. So 
first the first step toward dealing with this is first of all understanding where it comes from and then dealing with it across the board confronting it wherever it occurs we have to again we you, we've got to stop looking at this as, a, as just a piecemeal way of improving little things. You know, um, having, having demonstrations because there was one racist teacher in the school, that's important. You can't let one racist incident go, you know, go un, unpunished or, un, uh, or not, not respond to it. But until we get into these schools and change the policies that – um, that are so inherently racist that limit our children, there is nothing that we can do. And in order to have that kind of political power, again, it is intersectional. We can't just attack it at one point. It, it's, it's deeply embedded in terms of, well, okay, just to be very specific, we need to change the way the schools are funded, okay? If all the property taxes in the state go into one pot and then it's doled out to each child individually, then a lot of the problems that our schools have would disappear overnight because half of the problem of bad education that we deal with is due to the fact that the schools our children attend are underfunded, okay? So the, it's t- racism is at the base of how schools are funded. That decision was made to continue segregation, to intend to continue this notion of separate but damn tootin' not equal that has been a part of American education since day one. So that needs to be overturned. That's a political process, okay? So when we're talking about education reform, we've got to talk about getting down to the nitty-gritty, getting down to the base issues. Because, as again, the system that oppresses you cannot and will not make you free. I agree with you there. Uh, uh, th- thanks. Uh, I've, I've, uh, that was my only comment. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Ashford. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sister. Thank you for being on. It's been very educational. Um, I think, you know, I was impressed. Uh, I think we need a hands-on approach. The tie has, the tie has to hit the road at some point. And we need people involved in these in the school systems directly uh putting putting community input into the into the school systems uh parents getting involved et cetera and i I think you know that's that's critical uh if if we're gonna make progress uh uh, uh I'm not sure that I have any questions at the moment in the interest of time i I'm gonna leave it alone right now thank you. I'd like to say that it is really very critical that we hold our own institutions responsible for what happens in our community. Where I live, there's two churches on doggone near every block. You can't sling a cat without hitting the church in Oklahoma, and that's the case within much of the communities, many of the communities in which we dwell in this nation. What are our churches doing to um, to further the education and and the life chances of our of our children? You know, why should our children do without um, help learning to read? Why should our children be coming home 
uh, to empty to empty homes because their mamas got to work. When we got an empty church building sitting up there, you know, uh, that is very happy to take our ties every Sunday morning. Why does the black political class continue to uphold the oppressor's viewpoint on what's going on in this country uh, instead of representing the needs of the African people that they claim to represent who voted them into office and keep them into office? We've got to hold these people's feet to the fire. We have to make sure that the policies and the procedures that that are affecting our children and our families across the board are the ones that actually work to our self-interest and not to the furthering of our oppression. Sister Camille, I'd like to respond to this scenario. Also, as another example of institutionalized racism as it relates to our children and our people, when you're talking about the education system. When you look at schools that are now being designed, built, brand new schools, they claim called millions of dollars, et cetera, et cetera, being built. When you look at those schools that are being built for African communities, they are literally being built and designed as it's a prison. When you look at the yep. color arrangements placed inside those schools, those color arrangements are made in a way where it's not really created for, for creative thinking. It was made for ways of ways for that that would depress a, a, a youth more so than stimulate their their interest in having creative ideas. When you look at some of the practices that go in, go into the inner city schools, for example, some of the schools I have visited, they have the children inside the schools not no longer eating their lunch in the cafeterias, but they stay in their classrooms, and when it's time to eat their lunch. They have guards come out of that door, knock on the door, tell them go to the cafeteria, get their lunch, and come back. These are all practices and behavior of how one runs a prison. So many people argue that they are preparing their kids psychologically to get used to be used to prisons, because even with these new schools, most of them have very little windows where you can't get no sunshine. It's all brick in. And they have the cell block numbers on the outside, look like a prison cell. What you make of that phenomenon? Why is it that we have psychologists, African psychologists and sociologists working these school systems, and they say nothing about these kind of conditions in which they expect our kids to, to function? That is the absolute truth. I drove by a new school that's under construction just the other day, and I looked at it, and I said, oh, my God, there are no windows. They've got these little slits just like the county jail. This building, a new school that they're putting up, you know, and and it's all in the newspapers and everything. They're getting ready to do the ribbon cutting, and it looks, it's a dead ringer for the county jail. The school-to-prison pipeline is real. Everything about the way that these schools that our children attend is run, it mirrors what happens in the penitentiary. I mean, you 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 aren't kidding. This isn't hyperbole. This is this is the fact. And we see the way these things play out in terms of the outcome that our children receive. It's it's outrageous. It's it's amazing when you talk about on an elementary level. The first thing 
at the first day of the school year to our children see is the first thing they see to have police cars out in front of the building. They are the first thing that they see. It is the first thing that they see. Psychologically, do you have people understand what? the impact that has on young children? Absolutely. They have they have in in a lot of schools, children have to carry clear backpacks so that they can see into your backpack. They've got to pass through metal detectors to get into school. But I ask you and all our other listeners, when's the last time you heard about a black child shooting up a school? That's not something that we do. But they're running the school like a prison. Our children are born with a number on their back as far as the society is concerned. And unless and until we take over these institutions and make them responsive to us, the only other option is to, is to teach them yourself or to create institutions of your own that, that reflect our values, that reflect our culture, and that celebrate our children as being the future of our, of, of our community and valuable members of society. Camille, we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we will ask you to give our listening audience your final thoughts, and we'll get our final thoughts for our panelists. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. And remember, without information, you cannot think. So we want to get you information so you can think. And without organization, you can't think clearly. We also want to encourage you to join organizations. Because that's the only way we can see our way out of this problem. Organizations are welcome for our press. So to our supporters, listening audience, please take heed to this information. And Sister Camille, we will be right back. And we want you to give our listening audience our final thoughts or your final thoughts on the issue of education, racism, and we consider the U.S. way. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Do they really count bars?
All we want to say is they don't care about us. Sister Camille, as we talk about uh, the issue of education, racism, and the U.S. way, give us your final thoughts on this issue. First of all, that song was right on point. They do not care about us. The solution to institutionalized racism lies within the development of Pan-African socialism. The eradication of race oppression requires a total political project, namely the transformation of capitalism. We've got to reclaim revolutionary class politics if we expect to build a post-racist society. In other words, we have to transform from the existing capitalist situation into a socialist situation that constitutes the possibility even of a post-racist society free from racial and other forms of, of oppression. When we say freedom, we are not talking about a law that says you can't segregate or a cultural articulation of individual rights. We are talking about something that is far different from what bourgeois race theorists propose. Freedom is a material effect of emancipated economic forms. In other words, it's pan-African socialism when it comes to African people. Okay, my sister, we thank you for your insightful presentation on the subject matter. And for all individuals who have Listen to this program. If you're interested in having further dialogue with our guests or bringing them here to your community or what have you, we encourage you to contact us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail. Send us your information, your name, your email, your phone number, and we will get in contact with her where you can, so she can get in contact with you. So, Sister Camille Landry, thank you for sharing your information as an educator as a businesswoman, as a political organizer, as a sister who is full with love, we thank you for your contribution to today's program. Thank you very much, Brother Lee. Okay. In closing out, our final thoughts from our political panelists and analysts for tonight, we'll start out with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been a great show. Sister Camille, it's very, very pleasurable to hear your voice once again. Uh, I thank you for your penetrating analysis and uh, insights into the situation we face here in the U.S. of A. and around the world. And uh, it's just once again, um, Pan-Africanism is the solution for a lot of our problems. Uh, If we can just uh, unite around scientific socialism. I think we could, the world will be a, a lot better off uh, if we can continue that struggle. I thank you and good night. Uh, thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Brother Africa, I, I got to tell you, uh, the situation for African people is becoming extremely perilous. And you know, uh, no matter which no matter which way you look at it, uh, the situation is, is is very very grim. Recently, they talked about um, the bond market, and they talked about rising interest rates with bonds. 
The thing is that the government is so bankrupt, it depends on selling those bonds in terms of gaining revenue. But what happens is that by increasing interest rate on those bonds, it means that stocks are less valuable, which means that those zombie corporations, corporations that don't, that don't have the economic means in terms of survival, it means that they become starved for, starved for, uh, for revenue. Which means that a situation in terms of related to unemployment, and we talk about uh, uh, funding for schools or whatever you talk, or whatever kind of funding that's needed, is simply not there. Simply because the uh, revenues are simply not there. So clearly, we got a problem. And uh, no matter what, which way we look at it, the bottom line is that as far as the African community or poor people are concerned, it, the the bottom line is that the situation is um, catastrophic. I mean, that's no other way to put it. I wish I could be more optimistic in terms of my assessment. But the bottom line is that the whole economic system has been declined, rapid decline, and there's nothing's going to change that. When we talk about investments in society, most investments that exist among the capitalist class, that 1.1% or 1% of the population, most of the investments go to, 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 the, to, the, to the Far East, the Middle East, I mean to the Far East. And so, therefore, when you talk about the, the need for investments right here in America, they're not forthcoming, simply because those people with money realize there's no money to be had in society. Which means because there's no money available, you got a situation where central banks continually continue to pump out, pump out more and more and more money. The more money they pump out, the more workers the, the dollar becomes. Uh, the more expensive uh, things like apartments, uh, mortgages, uh, buying cars, uh, education, the more expensive those things become. Which means that poor people are in a very precarious situation. So clearly, Brother Africa, there's no joke out here. People must realize the nature of the threat and begin to move to organize critical institutions which is so desperately needed. You have to say that, Brother Africa, I'm going to close and wish you a good night. And as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, and you have a good night. You the same, Brother Hackey. Nick, Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that it becomes more important than ever that we organize that we form our uh, uh we that that w- that we join a political organization uh that uh that has our liberation as a priority uh and that we uh and that we stand uh and that we defend the interests and a- and take control of the education of our youth that takes political organization and uh, we must fight for pan-Africanism one such organization that's doing that is the all African people's revolutionary party GC you can find out more about us and our objective by checking out our website at www dot a dash a p r p dash g c dot org and on that note have a good night brother africa and thank you and good night and good night to you brother anthony and we're going to say good night to all our listening audience our supporters to our special guest camille landry again if you'd like to get in contact with any of our guests Please email us at Africa on the Move, the number two at gmail.com. Send us your information, and we will put you in contact with our guests. In closing the night, we want you to remember: let's always strive to go forward, our backwards novel. And the best way we can do this is to get information, 
use this information in an organized manner, and in that way, we will ensure that we can be more precise in gaining those things that we need, those things that we want, and those things that can truly liberate us as a people. We'll see you next week from 7 to 9 p.m. on Africa on the Move. If you'd like to have a copy of this program, a past program, email us. We'd be more than happy to send it to you. So until at this point in time, we say goodnight, and we'll leave you with some inspirational music, some music of liberation. You have been listening to Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa. Good night. Up. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. I'm all about peace and an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mosaddegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist, got the strip was getting bomb, Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game, your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame? When they dropped the bombs out of them planes, using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it, see the game they run. Give a fuck who's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face He said, fuck it, I'll do it A master of the sky, expert at telling lies Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize Should've known he was trained in Chicago Where the chairman Fred and Mark talk What they do in the dark will come out in the light
Obama, Obama didn't say shit What's the bigger threat from a Osama or from Obama? Military bases from Chagos to Okinawa I say things that other rappers won't say Cause my mind never closed like Guantanamo Bay Hope you didn't feel the statue or tattoo your arm Cause the drones are still flying over crash through the sun Did he defend the war? No, he extended more Even had the time to attempt to in Ecuador Morales and Chavez, the states are on the hunt for you Military now stationed on bases in Colombia Take a trip to the past and tell them I was right Ask Ali Abu Nima and Jeremiah Wright is Obama the bomber getting ready for Syria? First black president, the masses were hungry But the same president just bombed an African country like Jonas Brothers are here. They're out there somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. You will never see it coming. You think I'm joking? Talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did its way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy and go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to fear people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own down. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if my hats with her, Malcolm had with her. It be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you. 
Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new I said, what if we been lied to? Most of our freaking lives Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right Your arrogance precedes you What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me A man lay dead in the street today I must have on my head Landed in 1940 or something, I swear And all I have is love and joy to give I need to spread my wings I need to fly away I wanna get high today Who got five on my little bundle of temporary Man, I wanna live long enough to be legendary Your statistics said by now that I'm gonna be dead and buried But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already And I'm march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose Two different tribes and we fighting the same person Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us Cosmic companionship sustained me After my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today, I must have bumped my head, and landed in 1940 or something, I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my wings, I need to fly away. An Africanist must come from the bottom up from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chumpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning, it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. 
This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> so we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system, and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching it. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. <laughs> Matter of fact, I can say it in two words, black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology, it is an objective, it is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system, that's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course, of course, and me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? 
If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. To realize our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayal by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. 
in America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back their gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the Claire Poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Your flexion high, high, high. Your flexion. 